at the very beginning of my own podcasting career. I had a great conversation with Mike Dever, covering many trading-related topics, one of which was the different approaches to trading. And there was one segment in particular that I really liked and which I would like to share with you today. And it was a segment where Mike shared his own systematic approach to trading. And as you listen to it, please keep in mind that Mike was not always a systematic trader. If you would like to listen to the full conversation, you can do so by just uh, going to toptradersonflock.com forward slash 003 and also forward slash 004. And the benchmark program, was that systematic um, and, and completely without discretion or, or did you keep some of the sort of the, your discretionary trading in there? No, we didn't. It was fully systematic. But what we did was look at a lot of the types of trading that I did through the night through the eighties and try to capture that in a systematic fashion. So, for example, we had you know a number of strategies that were um, based on um, market reaction to news events or reports because I traded a lot of uh, that type of event reaction sure. in my sure. discretionary trading. Um, so we systematized the approach, uh, captured it in the best way we possibly could and included that in the benchmark program. So there were there were a number of strategies in benchmark that were based on sort of that intuitive or discretionary feel, but instead of relying on uh, you know the the black box of the brain to interpret everything correctly each day, uh, it followed you know rigid set of rules to be able to repeat the process, you know every time it recurred. And 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 so in 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 that sense just just to be clear, were you convinced even at that time early on that if you were going to be successful from an investment management point of view you had to be systematic was that something that just was obvious at that time or or was it, it more it was. an operational operational issue where you say okay what's well, actually easier if i can do it uh, systematically because you know the systematic side of things are partly i think an operational issue but it's also an emotional issue in no, my absolutely opinion. yeah no no i mean the the one thing you get that you get from systematic, I mean, you get a lot of things, but the the one main things that I think ben would benefit the majority of traders out there is the um, discipline that, that it brings to the, to the trading. Yeah. It's, you can sit there and say as much as you want as a discretionary trader, well, I'm going to, I'm going to cut my losses at these levels. Um, I, I've got a bad trade. I'm going to get out when it does this. Uh, but not everybody does that. And, and you may do that for a while, but at some point, you're, you're, there's that constant battle where you're sitting there saying, but it's a great position. I've got a great position. And, uh, you know, I've been reading some books about the financial crisis. And one of the things that you see there that's um, the same as what you had with long-term capital is that just that utter breakdown in risk management discipline. And it, it's easy for a person to sit and rationalize why, you know what, the, the risk management wasn't designed for this scenario, or this was a great trade you know, 10% loss ago, it's even better now, yeah. you know, so I'm certainly not going to get out of it today and, and just ride it into the ground. So the, the one thing, if there's nothing else that you get from systematic trading is the disciplined risk management approach uh, to trading. Sure. Symphony, what was interesting about this process is when I made the decision to get back into trading uh, on, on a full-time basis and commit to, you know, beginning the Symphony, Brandywine Symphony program, <clears throat> I went back to the strategies that we had developed in the 90s, and there were about uh, maybe three dozen that were in the benchmark program, and pulled out 
you know, evaluated all the ones, pulled out the ones that I thought were still relevant today. There were some that became um, irrelevant. Uh, ones, for example, we had that was looking at freely traded interest rates, Fed controlled versus tra- freely traded. That in the 2009-10 period when we were starting to redevelop the program, we realized there just wasn't the environment for that. Sure. There, that you sure. didn't have that, you know, that, that freedom of uh, interest rates in the, in the environment. So there were, there were strategies like that that we didn't even look at updating the testing on. But there were about two dozen that still remain relevant uh, today. And we updated the testing on those. And the, the, the great news about it, and I, I like to say it's you know, the good and the bad, and the, you know, the good side and the great news was that those strategies continue to perform as expected from 1999 through the 2009 period when we first started updating the, the walk forward on those, as we had not only back-tested them to perform through the 70s and the 80s, sure. but they actually performed with real money in the 1990s. So th- the strategies remain valid. Um, the, the bad news, as I like to point out, is if I had just simply continued to run Brandywine <laughs> in that fashion, I, I would have owned a, a baseball team sure. today. Yeah. You know, so um, I, don't, I don't have the Boston Red Sox, but I you know, <laughs> do have those strategies, and, and they're of enormous value. Related to risk management comes drawdowns. And I'd love to know, um, you know, how you uh, or whether you do predict in your uh, testing and, 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 and analysis a, a level of expected drawdown for, for the way the, the portfolio operates. And, uh, and um, is that how you come up with the, the, the overall balance to, to say we're happy to, to do this because we expect it to have, uh, as you say, a certain level of return, a certain level of standard deviation. But I don't know whether you relate that standard deviation to, uh, uh, to drawdowns as well or, or how you look at that. Yeah, so I, I consider drawdowns the true measure of portfolio risk. Uh, volatility, you can look at hundreds of examples where volatility is meaningless. You know, if, uh, certainly in an option writing strategy that has no volatility to it does not mean it has no risk to it. Mm. Um, you know, conversely, one of the examples I give in the book was a strategy based on a time price series that had pretty enormous volatility in it. It, it was uh, over the course of a year, I forget what the actual volatility number was, I think it was in the 30, 40% range uh, of daily price activity, but it was a extra super safe strategy and highly predictable. I, all I was showing was the, the average mean temperature in Philadelphia mm-hmm. on each day of the year. You know, so it's something that cyclically, you, you pretty much if you bet in the winter that it was going to go up between then and the summer, you were going to make money, mm-hmm. but it had a high level of volatility during that period. So there's, there, there's a number of instances where volatility is meaningless as a measure of risk. Where volatility and drawdown break down in the relationship is when you don't have a balanced truly diversified portfolio, you're, you're just doing one strategy or a sector of markets, um, it, then the volatility that you're looking at is, is virtually meaningless, which is why, to me, sharp ratio is a absolutely meaningless um, measure on its own. It doesn't give you any idea of predictability of returns. I mean, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And, and in fact, we, um, you know, over the years, uh, we looked at, um, you know, hundreds of CTA track records. And what we found as a rule of thumb was actually that you should expect a maximum drawdown uh, for any manager of roughly five times their monthly standard deviation. So if you have someone who's, you know, on a 5% monthly standard deviation, you should expect them to lose 25% at some point. And that, that 
you know, as a rule of thumb, that's not uh, too far I, off. I, I think I think it's pretty close. And and if you have the the less diversified their portfolio and strategies sure. and markets, the the bigger that drawdown is going to be relative to that standard deviation. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that. Now, uh, Mike, you've been around for a long time, and I'm sure some of the people listening today uh, would love to hear your view on that. And that is, you know, drawdown certainly adds to the emotional roller coaster that all managers go through. I mean, how do you, or or, or what helps you? keep an emotional balance when you go through these periods it's it's no different when we're making money or when we're losing money it i I don't have anything in my track record that shows i will not incur a drawdown you know it's a natural process it it's just part of our program so for example last summer in uh, mid 2013 we were in what i was referring to people uh, as a perfect drawdown we on an intraday basis it was eight and a half percent on a month end basis about seven and a half percent peak to trough which was at that point in our trading exactly where we should have had maximum drawn it was a little delayed it might have it should have happened you know half a year or so sooner by then so the probability was getting out there and what we sent out in our monthly report you know notice that hey this is this is a perfect drawdown um, if if you want to invest now it's it's great time to do that I'm not advocating timing because if you happen to have the drawdown, great, take advantage of it, but you don't want to wait for a drawdown because you give up the positive return expectancy you achieve on a month-to-month basis. But at, at that time, it was just, it was a perfect drawdown. I, it's, I, I don't, I guess, react one way or another to it. It's just what it is. It's, it's what it should be. Um, so you just, I accept that as well as I accept the positive period. Yeah. No, no, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a perfect response, but I guess, uh, so few people out there on the investment, uh, you know, allocator side uh, will um, will see it the same way as we as on the, on the manager side do. But it, it uh, is funny, you know, because yeah. they'll look at the back yeah. testing and the track record, the actual track record, and they'll see there's a eight percent drawdown. Yeah. But then when you have it, it's they, they question it like yeah. there's something wrong. No, it's it's exactly what it's supposed to be. Yeah. You know, nothing different. That's it for today. And remember, if you want to continue listening to the full episodes, please go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash 003 and forward slash 004. If you enjoyed this short, insightful clip from a past episode of the show, then you will love the free book I'm giving away right now. It's called The Many Flavors of Trend Following and includes some of my best insights on this perhaps the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. You can get a free copy of the book if you go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash book right now and start your own journey today. So again, just head over to toptradersonplug.com forward slash book and make sure to tune back into the podcast or the YouTube channel next week for more exciting and engaging conversations.